going to be Ephesians chapter 1, so that's a good place to start. Um, as we close out, I, I found myself this week plagued with the, the task of um, encapsulating the back half of David's life into one week. <laughs> um, and, and as I did that and sat down and prayed, and, and that, that is always the first thing, is just to go and ask God and say, okay, Lord, well, this is what we have, and this is where we're at, so what do you want to do, and how do you want to do it? Um, I, I found that it, it, probably not the best use of, of the time to try to summarize 20-something chapters and, and give you know an overview of all the things that happened and try to find some application and, and the whole thing, and everybody leaves kind of confused, like, what did, where was that, and how, and the whole thing, and, and all... And so I, I really felt the Lord leading and then, um, and then um, speaking to just to take a look at, at the whole of David's life um, and, and all that it was and, and, and kind of just ask the question that from a bird's eye view, if we take the whole thing, what is it that the Lord w- would have us to know? What, what are the lessons um, that, that stand out the most as we look at, at the whole of his life? Um, what does the Holy Spirit of God want to teach us? The universal things that we learn about God's shaping of men, you know, as we've been looking at uh, kind of this theme. And I, and I think it's really the Holy Spirit leading that we got as far as we did, uh, even just in coming as far as David and Bathsheba. Um, because really, from, from the beginning of David's uh, account, all the way up through Bathsheba, it really is the shaping of a man. Uh, from this point, it becomes the preserving of a man. You know, so so it kind of turns a corner in a sense, and so I think the Lord is in uh, even the timing of things. But um, what are the things that David's life uh, teaches us as we consider the whole thing uh, by way of summary and and seek to to see our lives through the lens of it? And so, if you're taking notes this morning and you want to write write these things down, uh, the first here is that um, God never wastes a surrendered heart. God doesn't waste a surrendered heart. And we get this from the portion of David's life very early on, uh, even before um, Samuel first visited him and anointed him with oil, uh, long before David ever found out that he would one day become the king uh, or what God had for him, uh, any, anything else. But basically, we, we get this from the portion of David's life when he was just a young boy and when God was watching him and he didn't even know about it. And, and the text that we have for it is, and you don't have to turn there, it's just a single verse, but it's 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. And, and there it says this, and, and the context of it is um, when Saul was disobedient to the Lord um, and Samuel came to Saul. Remember when uh, Samuel told Saul to wait seven days to offer the offering? And he waited like six and a half days. And and Samuel didn't show up, and he kind of presumptuously took it in his hands, and he did what was not his business to do. And then Samuel showed up just a couple of moments after Saul finishes the offering, and uh, Samuel brings a rebuke to Saul, um, and as he does so, he says these words to him. It's First uh, Samuel 13, verse 14. It says, But now your kingdom shall not continue, because the Lord has sought him a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be captain over his people because you have not kept that which the Lord commanded you. And so basically what what Samuel is telling Saul there is that God has already searched through the land and God has found someone that has the type of heart 
that he is looking for uh, that he'll be able to, to lead and shape and then use to become a good king over his people. Now, the remarkable thing about all that is that at this point, David is just a very young man, probably uh, 10 years old or somewhere in that, in that realm, you know, at the time that these words are actually spoken. And from the perspective of God, he, he has already searched out and he's already seen uh, in all the hearts of all the people of the land, someone that he'll be able to make into the type of man that he wants to use to do something incredibly great. And so we see is that God was watching David, even when David didn't know. And what God saw in him is that he had a heart after the Lord's heart. And so I ask myself the question, I say, well, what exactly does that mean um, for someone to have a heart that's after God's own heart? And I, I think that the meaning is twofold. Uh, the first is that it means that, uh, that David was inclined to God-likeness, meaning that, that in his heart, in the deepest part of what made him tick and what made him who he was, is that he wanted to be like the Lord. He, he wasn't a self-willed person that was, was constantly kind of like the rebellious child, always looking to see what he could get away with or how close to the line could he walk and still be right with God. But David saw the Lord as, as basically the role model of his life. And he said, if, if, if I could have my highest ambition and the highest goal of my life, it would be to be, to, to be Christ-like. Well, you know, he might not have used that term, but, but he would have said, I want to be like the Lord. I want to be as godly of a man in my life as it is possible for me to be on this side of heaven. And that was in David's heart to do it, and God saw that. The other, um, the other thing that, that it means is that David was after God's heart, meaning that he was pursuing God. When, when he says that I found me a man who is after my heart, the, the idea also is that he's chasing after my heart, meaning that he's, he wants me. He, he's not a man who just kind of lives for himself, who lives for what he wants to do, his ambitions and his desires and his goals, but he really wants my will. He's seeking after me. He's seeking after what I would want and what I want to do. And so David had a deep love for God, and he had a, a deep sense of God's love for him. And that made David someone who was fiercely loyal to God. He, he was careful about God's reputation. He was careful about what pleased and displeased God. And those things moved David even as a young man. And David wanted God's will both for his own life and for the life uh, of anyone else that, that he could affect or, or what he could want. Now, what it doesn't mean uh, for, for a man to be after God's own heart is that we do everything perfectly. Well, God says, I've searched throughout and I found all the, looked at all the hearts and I found someone who's actually good enough <laughs> to, to represent me in this way. That's not the, the idea at all. The Bible says that our most righteous acts, that the best that a, a human life could ever produce is like filthy menstrual rags when you line it up next to the standard of what God requires of men. So there's not a single one ever that, that is good enough or that can actually earn or be qualified to uh, serve God in any capacity or be used by God in any capacity. That's not the idea. What God is looking for is not someone who is able or someone who is qualified. What he's looking for is someone who is willing. And when he finds someone who genuinely loves him and genuinely is concerned with his plan for their life and his will, 
in a, in a uh, corporate sense. What does God want? Then God can do very much with that life regardless of uh, what else is accompanied with it. Um, sometimes I, I look at this verse or this concept of having a heart after God's and it seems very hopeless to me. Because I know myself. I know how self-absorbed I am and how consumed I can be with myself. And, uh, and, and sometimes I think, well, Lord, you know, as you search through and your eyes run to and fro, I, I just can just automatically not even lift my head to see if you're stopping at me. Because I know me, you know, and I just figure that you'll pass right on over and you'll, you're going to find someone else because I know my own heart and I know that it's not here. And, and, and it's hopeless to me in the context of what I am in myself. But when I consider my life in the context of the new covenant, in the context of what it means to be in Christ, that changes everything. Because in the new covenant, uh, the, you know, the Bible says concerning the new covenant that it's not like the old covenant where, where, where we're obeying a written command and trying to, to measure up to something that, that we can't. But the glory of the new covenant is that God the Holy Spirit has literally come into my life at the moment of my salvation and he promises, and that's the promise of the new covenant, that he has given me a new heart. Meaning that by the person of the Holy Spirit at work in my life, God has equipped me to have a heart that, it is in, that is inclined towards his. That's been given to me already. And so what God is looking for now is not if I have already the hardware and the software to be that person. What he's really looking for in my life is am I willing Am I willing to say, Lord, I, I want to lay down my ambition and my self-love and my self-desire and self-goals, and I'm willing to lay all of that down because I see you as an infinitely higher purpose, and I see your person as an infinitely higher thing to live for, and I see your will as an infinitely greater thing than anything that I could purpose for my own life or that I could be a part of in a sense of, of doing with my time or with my energy. And so, Lord, I find myself willing that you would, would make me this kind of a man. And when God finds that kind of a will, he sees a heart that's after his. And so I let this passage search me this morning, and I ask myself the question that when God looks on me, or we can open it up and say, when God looks at us in secret, when we don't even know that he's looking in a time when he's examining and he sees the secret counsels of our heart, does he see someone that simply is living for self and, and that's using God? Somehow, God, you're going to fulfill my purposes for my life. Or does he see someone who is genuinely desiring him and desiring his purposes for my life? And so I ask myself that question and I ask God to help me to be honest with myself. And if there's anything that's amiss, the Lord, if there's a secret area of my life, then give me the power and the willingness to lay it down, that I, that I might be truly considered a man that has a heart like yours. And so David teaches us the importance of a man whose heart is after the things of God. The second thing that we learn uh, from David's life from a bird's eye perspective is that God has something for everyone that is willing to be shaped by him. And we learn this from the portion of David's life uh, around the time that Samuel uh, did come to visit David and poured the horn of oil on his head uh, and, and essentially let him know that God has chosen him. Now, we don't know that 
that that Samuel told David what for. In fact, it almost seems as though he didn't tell him uh, that, that he would one day be the king. He shows up, he anoints him, and says, God's got a plan for your life, and then he leaves. And David goes back into the field and keeps on watching the sheep that he had been watching, and then things uh, kind of begin to unfold. But, but basically what we learn from this portion of David's life is that when God finds someone that has that right kind of heart, then it's an absolute shoo-in that God has something for that person's life. That he's not going to waste that life. He doesn't say, well, okay, I've got you know, this whole room full now of hearts that are, are after me. And I only have one job that needs to be done. And so I'm just going to pick someone and the rest of those people, well, oh well. <laughs> you know, I, I can't use them or I don't have something for them. God doesn't waste anything. We, we know that, right? I mean, he, here's the God who to, told the apostles, go pick up every piece of scrap fish and bread that you find and put it in a basket. We're not going to waste one crumb, one thing of it. And, and how much more a human heart that's inclined towards the Lord. In Ephesians chapter 1, um, the apostle Paul is writing to Christians in the New Testament context. He could be speaking to us. And if you look at um, verse 15 of chapter 1, um, Paul says this, and I want you to just take this very personally as though this was an email sent directly to you from the Apostle Paul, you know, because that's, that's how God intended it. He didn't intend this to just be us reading someone else's mail. This is to you. And so this is Paul, and he's writing to you specifically, and he says this. He says, Wherefore, I also... After I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love to the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And here's, here's Paul's prayer for you. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, that's just kind of fancy King James language for him to just say very simply that my prayer is that you would know God in the fullest sense that it's possible for you to know God. That, verse 18, the eyes of your understanding. So not the eyes in your head that see things physically, but the eyes that can see invisible things, the things of your understanding, that those eyes would be enlightened, why? That you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Or to say it another way, that you would know the hope of his calling for your life, and what riches of glory there are in his inheritance in the saints. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that I want you to understand this, you personally. I want you to understand the immense resources that are in the hand of our Father that he is ready and willing to dispatch in your direction. And for, your, and for his purpose for your life. God is unlimited in his resource, the riches of his resources and what he's able to do. And then he goes on and he says in verse 19, and it doesn't stop there, what is the exceeding greatness of his power 
toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. What he's saying there is that not only does God have every resource at his disposal, but he says that God is capable of doing anything, that there's nothing that's too hard for God. So in the context of my life, what he's able to do with me and what he's able to do in me and what he's able to supply for me in order to accomplish those purposes is without limit. He is absolutely unlimited. Then he goes on, verse 20, which he wrought or demonstrated in Christ when he raised him from the dead. If God can raise a man from the dead, what can't he do in our lives now while we're still living? And set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. Now, what does that mean? Verse 21, that he's far above all principalities, powers, and every name in this world and in the world that's to come. Here's what it means. It means that of all the forces, and that includes all the opposing forces to what would, would take place in our lives, he sits higher than all of those other forces and authorities, both in heaven and in earth. Meaning Satan can't hinder you. The demonic realm can't hinder you. The worldly forces and worldly things, the things that we fight against on a day-to-day basis, those, those things cannot hinder God. He is completely sovereign over all of it. So what have we seen thus far? He's unlimited in his resource. He's unlimited in his power. And he's unlimited in his authority, meaning nothing can stop him. Okay, so what does all that mean? Look at chapter 2, verse 1. It says, and you. So here's now how it applies to us. And you has he quickened or made alive. That is, we've been born again. Who were dead in trespasses and sins. So what once we were lost, now we are found. Wherein, in time past, that is, when we were unsaved in our sins... You walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's another name for Satan. You were followers of the devil. The spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our lifestyle in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature, the way we came into this world, we were the children of wrath, even as others. Meaning every single human being comes into this world with a heart contrary to God's own heart. We were by nature children of the devil and children of wrath. But it didn't end there. Verse 4, but God... And you should always circle the but gods in the Bible because there's always amazing contrast between what's on the left side of a but God and what's on the right side of a but God in the scripture. So that's what we were, not a pretty picture, but God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. So that's the reason and the motivation for God. Even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us or made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you are saved. And not only so, he has raised us 
up together. Do you notice that that's in the past tense? That God already sees it as finished? He has raised us up together and has made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, that's eternity, guys, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now pause right there, and we're going to finish with verse 10 in this segment in just a moment. I just want to summarize what he said to us thus far. He's saying that God is infinite in his riches and his resources. He's infinite in his power and his ability. He's infinite in his authority to supersede and go, go over the head of any opposing force. And then he's taken all of that and then he's applied it to our life in that while we were yet his enemies and sinners, he died for us. And not only did he die for us to seat us in heaven, but now he has made available to us all of those riches and all of that power and all of that authority. Why? So that in the ages to come, he might show those riches to us and then notice verse 10. Here's why. For, and for is a reason word, for we are his workmanship. The word in the Greek is poema, or we're God's clay. We're God's work of art, something that he's shaping and molding and fashioning. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained, listen, that we should walk in in them. So here's what that means when you take the whole of what Paul is saying, you take the whole of this thought. He's saying, listen, when your heart is in the hand of the Lord and your will is surrendered to him and you say, God, I want what you've got for my life and I want your purpose for my life. Then at that moment that that surrender is made and your heart is placed in God's hand in that way, God makes available to you every resource of heaven all the power at his disposal, including his authority to supersede all other opposing force. And by his grace, and by nothing else other than his grace, he begins to shape your life and my life for the purposes that he has designed for us. And what that means is that he does not waste a single heart that is surrendered into his hand. He has something of great value, of great power, and great purpose for everyone who puts their heart into his hand. And so I asked myself this question this morning in light of this, as we see it in, in David's example. What do I want for my life? And am I supremely concerned with my own plans for my life? Or do I want what God wants for my life? Because God leaves that choice in our hands, doesn't he? I mean, we can go our own way. He doesn't interrupt us and make us do, do what he has foreordained or what he has planned. He, he'll let us go the way that we want to go. He, does, he never violates our free will. But what do I want for my life? God, do I want your workmanship? Do I want the good works that you have before ordained that I should walk in them? 
Or am I so bent on what I have thought up for my own life that I'm willing to forego your plan and your desire and design for what I can do in my best efforts? And I have to ask myself that question. And I allow David's example and what God did in David's life to be a searchlight for me. David never could have known on that day when Samuel came and dumped oil on his head. David never could have known what God had for him. But I can guarantee you this, that the poor shepherd nobody from Bethlehem would never have made himself the king of the greatest nation in the world and the, the, you know, the descendant of what would ultimately become the son of God coming into the world. God's plan for David was infinitely greater than anything David could have ever planned for himself. And I know that I know that that is true for every one of us as well. God doesn't waste anything that's placed into his hand uh, and, and, and consecrated and left there. The third thing that we learned from David's life is that God doesn't send unprepared vessels into his service. And, and that comes to us from the portion of David's life when he was a fugitive, when he was surrounded by uh, trouble, trials, fear, uncertainty, doubt, <laughs> wondering if he would survive another day when he was being chased by Saul in the wilderness for all of those years that David found himself in, in that type of um, position. When we consider the great lengths <clears throat> that God brought David to in order to prepare him for the work that God had for his life, uh, it, it can almost be dizzying. Right to, to just consider all of the pain and, and what David had to go through in the whole thing. And it causes to us to ask the question and say, God, is, is that really all that necessary? <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I want your will for my life, and I want to be used of you, and I want to bear good fruit, and I want, you know, I, Lord, all these things are good. But when I count the cost, and I, and I ask myself the question, could I survive what David had to go through in order to be prepared for that? God, can we skip that part? <laughs> and the answer is a resounding no. And the, the reason for that is because God is, is extremely concerned with our well-being and how, how we're going to end up on the other side of things. He's also very concerned with his own reputation in the world. Uh, and, and that's part of part of you know what he does in, in the whole thing. And he's concerned with the lives of the people that we affect. And if he sends us into his service and we're not adequately prepared for that place of service, then our lives, first of all, become a train wreck because of the things that that we get ourselves involved in or that that happen to us or that we're not prepared for. And and we just shipwreck everything. We make a mess of things. We also damage God's reputation. Because if we're doing something in his name, and then we drag that name through the mud because of some area of our heart that wasn't consecrated, then we damage the reputation of God and of his kingdom. And amazingly, that, you know, that's really the least of his concerns. It concerns him, but he'll allow that to happen, and he does allow that to happen from time to time. But God is also concerned about the other people that we affect and how uh, it, our, our um, actions affect the, the people that are in our lives, whether be, they be our family or people that we minister to or people that we serve in whatever area of our lives. And so because of those things, God is committed to making sure that we're prepared. One of my roles uh, in life is that I, have, I am a father of five. And I know that that's no uh, huge feat and it doesn't make me anything just to, to be able to say that. 
One of the things that haunts me about that, um, that role is that I have the, the, um, the duty, the God-given duty, of, to the best of my ability, making sure that my children are prepared uh, for the future that, that they have, that God has ordained for them, whatever that might be. And, and, and I would be uh, defunct in my role as a father if I neglected to prepare my children in the best way that I know how. If I were to just kind of let them go into their future and just say, well, whatever, you know, they'll figure it out when they get there, <laughs> you know, um, then I wouldn't be doing my job as a father. And that's part of my role. It's part of how I love my kids. And God is a father, right? What did Jesus teach us to pray? When you pray, say, our father. And part of his role as father is seeing to it that we are prepared, both for our work in this world, primarily, and then secondarily, for our place in eternity. You know, we're going to end up in heaven one day, and inasmuch as Jesus is preparing a place for us there now, he's preparing us for that place all throughout our lives. And so God is relentlessly seeking to prepare us. And for us to remove ourselves from that preparation or to deny God his place in in, in preparing us is to, in a sense, disqualify ourselves from the work that he has for us. He must prepare us for the work that, that he has, no matter how painful that is. We're called to endure it. Um, in Isaiah chapter 30, turn to Isaiah 30. Isaiah the prophet, speaking by the Spirit of God, in verse 1, he says this. He says, woe to the rebellious children. That could be some of us, you know. Sayeth the Lord, and here's what the rebellion is that he brings against them. That take counsel, meaning they they seek advice from others, they want want, uh, to get direction for their lives and know what's the best way to go. But not from me meaning that the source of their counsel is from a counselor in the world or from some uh, handbook or some periodical or some Google search, and that cover with a covering, so, so they do something to cover themselves, like an insurance policy or you know, some kind of protection for themselves. They, they seek to be protected, and, and, and nothing wrong with that per se, but here's God's indictment, but not of my spirit, meaning it wasn't spirit-led. I, I didn't prescribe that for your life that he says they may add sin to sin that walk to go down into Egypt and Egypt in the Old Testament is always a a picture a, a type of parable of the world so he's talking about those that look to the world for their help they go down to Egypt but have not asked at my mouth they'll quickly turn to worldly means for help but they won't pray about the the situations that they're in. To strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh, that's the government, so they'll use the government in order to strengthen themselves, and to trust in the shadow of Egypt, the covering that the world provides. Therefore, now because of this, because God sees this, shall the strength of Pharaoh be your shame. The worst thing in the world is when, when we make a plan and it works. And that plan is independent of God. God says that, that, that plan, he says, the strength of Pharaoh is going to be to your shame and the trust in the shadow of Egypt, your confusion. So that's what's going to happen here. Now, 
the context carries on right through as you keep reading on. But look at verse 15. Because here's now how God applies it. He just kind of furthers that same indictment. But here's the application of it now as it relates to you and I. He says, For thus saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel. Here's his word to us. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength. But you would not. In other words, you're so quick to just try to fix the problem yourself, and you'll do that by the world or by the government or by Egypt or or by whatever means you want, but you won't turn. Listen, here's your strength, child of God. Trust me. That's what God is saying here. In returning and in rest shall be your strength. But you said, verse 16, no, for we will flee upon horses. We'll trust in the strength of a horse because a horse is stronger than we are. Therefore, God says, shall you flee? And you said, we will ride upon the swift. Therefore, shall they that pursue you be swift? You're constantly going to be running, but as fast as you can find a way to run, your problems are going to catch up with you that much faster. It's not going to work, your plans and your purposes. One thousand shall flee at the rebuke of one, and at the rebuke of five shall you flee, till you be left as a beacon upon the top of a mountain and as an ensign upon a hill. You're going to be left all alone, standing, vulnerable. And so here's what God says, verse 18, and here's our verse. He says, therefore, will the Lord wait? Wait for what? He's going to wait to unveil and show his blessing, his help, his covering, his strength. He's going to wait to reveal those things to you. Therefore, the Lord will wait that he may be gracious unto you. And therefore, will he be exalted that he may have mercy upon you. For the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for him. For the people shall dwell at Zion and Jerusalem. And you can go on and read through verse 23 on your own. And he kind of makes the promise even sweeter and more glorious. But here's, here's what basically the Spirit of the Lord is saying through the prophet Isaiah is this. Is that when we, when we choose to go our own way, or if we want to live a life apart from the preparation of God or the complete work of God within us, and we want to be self-reliant people, then what God says is that he's going to wait and he's not going to bestow the blessing or give the protection or the help or the covering. And he's going to wait until we come to the point where our eyes are off of the horizontal and fixed on the vertical. And we say, okay, God, you've got my attention now. I want your will. I want your plan for my life. Let's do this. And God says, good. Now let me show you my grace. Now let me show you my resources. Let me show you my direction. Now you're going to hear a word in your ear saying this is the way. Now your flocks and your herds are going to be multiplied. That's what he goes on if you read those verses that follow it. He's waiting for us to say, God, I'm willing whatever you want for us. He waits until we're adequately prepared. He will not not compromise on that for our own sake. 
that he might be gracious. So I look at my life through the lens of, of this as I see it in David's life and David's preparation. And I ask the question, and we must all ask ourselves this question here this morning. Lord, what is it that you're waiting for in my life? That when you look at my life right now, and, and whatever it is that you're withholding or whatever good purpose you have for my future that hasn't been realized by me yet, Lord, what do I yet lack? Where have I not allowed you permission to prepare me adequately and I'm still holding on to the reins and trusting in myself and not releasing and letting it go? Lord, would you, by your grace, show me this morning what area of my life you're waiting for for me to let go of and to give you complete control? And then, along with that, to say, Lord, would you please make me willing to surrender that? Because sometimes we know full well what it is that the Lord is waiting for. And we say, yeah, Lord, I know, but um, I ain't letting go of this. And in fact, Lord, I don't know if I can. I've been holding on to it so long, I don't know if these fingers even move anymore. You know? <laughs> but the Bible says that he can make us willing in the day of his power. And nothing is too hard for God. Even a withered hand can be outstretched by the power of Jesus Christ. So God, make me willing to give you all that you no longer have to wait upon me in your life. The fourth thing that we learned from David, and we're coming closer to a close, don't get nervous, we're not going to go through 18 of these. <laughs> There's five altogether, all but number four um, that we learn from David's life is that we learn that the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. And that's actually a verse. That's Romans chapter 11, verse 29. Uh, the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance repentance, meaning that when God gives gifts to a human life and when God gives a calling to that human life, he doesn't change his mind and he's not an Indian giver. He doesn't take it away. And we learn this from the portion of David's life when David sinned with Bathsheba and, and by murdering Uriah, that dark spot in David's uh, life. And what we see in that portion of David's life is that even in spite of the fact that David sinned greatly and, and, and did, a, did a horrendous thing, God did not stop using David during that season of his life, uh, nor did God take away the calling uh, that he had given to David. It was a gifting and a calling that was without repentance in God's mind. Now, when God calls a man, that includes every one of us, what he gives to us is he gives to us, uh, first of all, our salvation. And then he gives us the calling, whatever it is that he's, he's given for us. And then he equips us. And then he trains us. And then along with all of that, he gives us the warnings, the various warnings of, you know, watch out for this, and this is a pitfall, and don't go down this road, and stay on the narrow path. And he, he gives us all of the instruction and, and wisdom necessary for us to fulfill our calling, and then, ultimately, he releases his blessing. He begins to use our lives. We see things happening. There's a degree of uh, prosperity and enjoyment. We're settled, and we, we enjoy the peace of God. doesn't mean all our problems go away or that everything's easy. We, that's not real. You know, that's not life. You know? But we know that God is with us. We're experiencing his hand in, in and of our lives. So God does all those things when he gives us a calling. But what God does never do, listen carefully, is that God never takes away our free will. Meaning, he doesn't make us do something, nor does he stop us from doing something that we know that we shouldn't do. 
He gives us the power and the capacity to make choices and to do things uh, that, that, that we're going to do. He calls us to walk righteously. He teaches us this is right and this is wrong. This is black and this is white. And he doesn't hold his giftings or his calling in our life hostage to what we do on the other side of that calling. And that's important to know. Because I want to tell you some of the things that I've seen in my, what, going on 20 years as a Christian. And I'm, and I'm sure these are things that you guys have seen too because they happen all the time. Is that I have seen some insanely crooked people being used by God in extraordinarily powerful ways. And it doesn't come out until later just how incredibly crooked they were. At the same time, God was still continuing to use their life. And so you have a pastor who's been a pastor of a church for some 20-something years. And God has used that pastor to establish that work, and thousands of people have been saved under that ministry. And the amount of people's lives that have been affected by the outreaches of that church, the orphanages that have been started, and the missions that have gone out into all the world, and all of the various Bible studies or pastors and, 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 and evangelists that have been raised up and sent out, and there's just fruit just falling off the branches from this church and from the ministry that this person has started. And then it becomes exposed that for the past 10 years they've had multiple affairs or they've been stealing money or they've been in it and, and their motive all along has been to enrich themselves. And, and we can hear those stories and we do hear those stories. And we sit down in a, in a chair or we sit down on the edge and we hang our heads and we, and we think to ourselves, what, is this a game? L Lord, is this fake? Is this even real? Like what in, what in the world is that? You know, is this just some program? Is this psychology? God, how do we explain all of these things? And here's the answer. Is that the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. God will take a life. And God will do everything that he does to prepare and equip and send out that life with his blessing and in all the authority of the world. But listen, guys. If there's an area of the heart that remains unsurrendered or unconsecrated, or if there's a secret sin that I haven't dealt with or that I don't continue to deal with because it's a weakness in my life continually, then even if I've been serving the Lord faithfully for 10 years or 20 years, if I choose to give place to that sin in my life again, then the root of it will begin to grow. And that sin is going to produce in my life what sin produces in any life. And God isn't going to just stop using me on the day that that sin crops forward. He's going to keep doing what he's doing. He has told me what to do, and he's given me the choice. Now, there's going to be a train wreck. And all of that fruit is going to be damaged. And all of the reward from that fruit is going to be given to someone else. I lose out. God's glory won't be affected. God's kingdom won't go out of business or shut down. But I lose out. David had an area of his heart that was unsurrendered, unconsecrated to God. And it took 20 years of fruitful kingliness for the root to spring forth. But when it did, it destroyed the second 20 years of his ministry. And it became a nightmare for him. And we ought to fear the Lord and to understand 
that God will allow. What do we do as parents? We raise up our kids, right? And when they, when they do something wrong, they, you know, we take care of it. We discipline them. We teach them. We correct them. But they reach an age where we can't do that anymore. We don't take our 18-year-old kids and put them across our lap and get the spoon. And, you know, I mean, <laughs> can, can you imagine? You know, we, we don't do that because we realize, okay, we have taught them. We've instructed them. We've given them everything that we know how to give them. And now they have to choose. And God does the same thing. Early in our Christian life, I mean, I know you guys know what it's like because I've been there. It's like we sin and, you know, God judges, you know, and the whole thing. And we get it. And then we sin and God, you know, something happens and three things go wrong in the same day. And we're like, okay, God, I get it. I get it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I walk right in the whole thing. But, but, but God doesn't do that for, for our whole Christian life. He does that to teach us. But you get 15 years into your walk with the Lord and you sin. And you know what happens? Nothing. Oh, God, well, I am a little older now, God, and maybe this is a privilege that you're affording me because of the faithfulness of my years. Listen, don't mistake God's patience or God's silence for God's approval. We know what's right and what's wrong, right? We know where we're to tread and where we're not to tread. And the fear of God keeps me in a place where I say, Lord, I'm gonna, I want to choose what's right. You're going to let me make my decisions. But those decisions have eternal ramifications. And so I ask myself the question this morning as I look at my life through the lens of this, and I ask, Lord, um, in, in, as, as it relates to my life in, in the whole uh, thing, what hidden sin or area of weakness has the potential of hijacking my calling? Where's the area of weakness in my life that has the potential of hijacking my calling and my future fruit? And what is my attitude towards that weakness or towards that sin? What safeguards have I put in my life or exist in my life in order to keep me from being shipwrecked in that thing that I know is my... If I say that right now, we all know what our weakness is, what our Achilles heel is. You know, what safeguards are in my life to keep me from going down that road? And have I made myself accountable uh, to, to just... In, in whatever way I can, avert the ruining of good fruit in my life. And so David's life teaches us that the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. And then finally, number five, is that God knows how to finish what he began. And this comes from the time surrounding David's death. Turn to Second Samuel chapter uh, 23. Second Samuel 23, and then we're going to flip quickly in a moment to First Chronicles 29, which is our last uh, little passage. And this, this is brief, don't worry. Second Samuel 23, the last words of David. It says, now these be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, and the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. That's a great autobiography, isn't it? To be able to think about what it would be like to be on your deathbed and to be able to say something like this concerning yourself, that I was raised up on high. And David certainly was raised up on high when you consider where he came from and where he ended up. The anointed of the God of Jacob, chosen, filled with the Holy Spirit, and the sweet psalmist of Israel. Amazing what he doesn't say, isn't it? 
He doesn't even, he doesn't say the great king, the one after God's own heart. You know, these are just such noble and high things to seek after in our life. He says, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He that ruleth over men must be just ruling in the fear of God. That's what David learned in all of his years, both in preparation and then also in ruling. And he shall be as the light of the morning. When the sun rises, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. I love that line. And then he says, although my house be not so with God, yet has he made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. You say, what in the world is David talking about? David is saying this. He's saying, listen, if, if, I, if I take the, the summation of all that I've learned of God in my life, I have learned that he that rules over men must be just ruling in the fear of God. And that when that happens, that you have the right ruler in the right place, that there is nothing more beautiful and nothing more refreshing than to have that. It's like the clear shining after the rain on a perfectly clear morning when, when the world is all as it should be. Everything is perfect. And then David says this. He says, I haven't seen that yet. I've never seen that yet. He says, although it be not so with my house, yet God has made me a promise. And God has ordered it in all things, meaning it's going to happen. And it is sure and this is all my salvation. What is his salvation? Who is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus Christ. That he's the one that will rule in the fear of God and that will be just. And David says, this is all my desire, though I have yet to see it. Amazing, the last words of David as he points to Jesus Christ in all things. Turn quickly to Second, First Chronicles chapter 29. And just the very last of the last thing that the scripture records concerning David. First Chronicles 29, verse 26. It says, Thus David, the son of Jesse, reigned over all Israel. And the time that he reigned over Israel was 40 years. Seven years reigned he in Hebron, and 33 years reigned he in Jerusalem. And here's the capsulation of his life, verse 28. And he died in a good old age, full of days, riches, and honor. And Solomon, his son, reigned in his stead. Now, what is the purpose of seeing this? is that God fulfilled every promise that he had made to David. That God brought David to the end that God had purposed for him in the very beginning. That when God said to Samuel, when David was 10 years old, that I have sought me a man after my own heart, and he will be the commander of my people. God already saw how he was going to bring David through his entire life to the very end where the entire thing was crowned with honor. And God never took his hand off of David's life. The Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, it says, God says that I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil 
to bring you to an expected end. And that's true for every single one of us in here. God knows the plans that He has for us. He knows the things that He wants to do. And He is able to bring us to that expected end that He has for us without leaving one promise unfulfilled in all that He is designed to do. And so what, what do I learn from the ending of David's life in all of this? And that is that you know, I, I consider for me, you know, I know in my own life, there are times when life becomes so complicated and so confusing that I don't know which way is up. I don't know if you guys can relate to that or if that's just me. I, I, I hope I'm not the only one, you know. But there's times when I can, can, can feel that I am so lost. God, I'm so far. If I, if I had to bet or, or, or um, you know, guess, am I in your perfect will? I would, I would say that there's one chance in 10 billion that I'm where I'm supposed to be right now. <laughs> on things. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. You know? but, but sometimes I feel like that. Like, Lord, I don't know where I am. I'm completely lost. Where did I go wrong? Was it five years ago I took a wrong turn or 10 years? Lord, I am lost. And when I come to those places, and we all come to them sometimes, what I've learned to do is to just sit down and say, Lord, your word says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that you who began a good work in me will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And I claim that promise right now, right where I'm sitting. <laughs> in the middle of this chaos and confusion and this feeling like I am completely lost, God, all I'm asking of you is please don't abandon me and don't abandon your plan for my life and sort all of this confusion out and bring it where it's supposed to go. And here's my assurance is that God's able to do that. How many times throughout David's life, I'm sure that he sat thinking, how did I get here? How did I get into this cave? How did I get into the situation where I don't even know if I'm going to have a meal, my next meal, where it's going to come from? Or, or when David sat there and he watched Uzzah die after he had touched the ark and he went home that day and he thought, Lord, I, I had such a good plan. This was supposed to be such a, a glorious event and it turned into ruin and you're offended and I've, I'm embarrassed in front of the nation. How did I get here, Lord? Or on the day when Nathan, the prophet, confronted David because of his sin with Bathsheba and David sat there and looked at the mess that he had made the mess that he had made, and he had blood on his hand because of Uriah, and he thought, God, how did I get here? And, and what's the way out of this? And then the countless times after that, when David just looked around, and someone's throwing rocks at him and cursing him in the name of the Lord, and David's thinking to himself, yeah, he's right, I am, I'm an idiot. And yet when we come to the end of David's life, what we see is that out of his own mouth, he can testify and say that the Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and that he has accomplished Every last iota of the plan and purpose that he had for my life, he left nothing out in spite of me. And for God to look and speak of David's life, that he died as the united king of Israel, just as God had promised, and that he died with a rich heritage, and he died with abundance of riches and abundance of honor. God looked at that and he said, that was a successful life. And God is able to do that and wanting to do that for every one of us. God does not put these testimonies in the scripture for us as trophies of what he did with someone else. 
so that you can look on and say, nice for them. God wants to do it for you and I. And what he's looking for are these simple things. So simple. Lord, give me a heart like yours. Lord, I surrender my will into your hand. Lord, I'm willing for the preparation, no matter how painful and no matter how costly. Lord, keep me in there until it's done. Lord, make sure I'm ready, that I might walk in the fear of you and that my fruit would be lasting and not temporary from some foolishness. And God, please, please, finish what you've begun. Amen?